Hi, I'm Matt Bird. And I'm James Kennedy. And this is episode two of the Secrets of Story podcast. So, welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. It's a podcast where me and James are going to sit here and we're going to drink. He is drinking red wine. I do not have fruity beers for you tonight. It's it's a shame. I've actually gotten you the red wine you so desperately crave. It, it was a it was a chance for you to like have a running joke. Like every week, you could have more and more ridiculous and awful beer, and then I would just get more and more comically angry about it. And you kind of blew that a chance for a runner. And I did see in the store they were selling Ben and Jerry's chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream beer. And I thought about getting it just just, uh, just to stick it to James, but I didn't get it. You know, I was uh, having dinner with my friend, some of my friends tonight, and they I described to them, none of them had heard this podcast yet, what, what we were doing. They said, oh, you're doing another broadcast. Is it? Oh, no. Yeah, this is a broadcast. <laughs> it's two, two dudes talking on a podcast. This is, this is a broadcast. Look, just because we're naked, I don't think that... There's that, nothing that erotic about to, bro. I, yeah, I, thought that, I thought that bro always had this homoerotic hint to it. I guess it doesn't. No, no, it's just bros, just a bunch of bros. Just a bunch of bros. Okay, we're bros. I guess I'm just betraying my own homophobia. I'm like, hey, I'm not, I'm not a bro. What does that mean? Does that mean gay? I'm not gay. And it doesn't even mean that. Uh, welcome to The Secrets of Story. This is a podcast where James and I discuss storytelling advice that I have tried to foist upon the world, and then he gives me some pushback, and he says, no, 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 that's not true. My storytelling advice has been summed up recently in a book I published called The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. Well, we're introduce James. James is the author of the novel The Order of Odd Fish. And I'm also the curator of the 92nd Newbury Film Festival. Right, that was something we failed to mention last week, or yeah. last episode. One of the coolest things that James does is the 92nd Newbury Film Festival. You want to tell them a little bit about yeah, it, Yes, it's an annual um, kind of video contest in which young filmmakers and enthusiastic adults who are helping them uh, create short weird videos that tell the entire stories of Newbery winning books in about 90 seconds. So for those of you who don't know, the Newbery Award is the highest award in children's literature. And the movies that we get in every year are can sometimes be very gratifyingly strange. Like sometimes, like one time we got um, uh, Ramona and her father done in the style of a James Bond movie, or uh, Charlotte's Web done in the style of a horror movie. We have screenings of the best of these movies every year in 13 cities. And um, if you or your kids want to get a movie in for the film festival this year, the deadline is January 7th, and you can go to 92ndNewberry.com to find out more information. Acclaimed novelist and host of the 92nd Newbury Film Festival, and now, most importantly, co-host of the Secrets of Story podcast. And that brings up a good point. I think last week we kind of, maybe I pushed you into this, kind of put ourselves forward as authorities of some sort. And I realized I don't want to put myself forward as an authority. In fact, doing this podcast is kind of like a kind of therapy for me because I put out my first book and then partially because I like my wife and I had two kids I kind of went into a creative tailspin and I couldn't get anything done for a long time and now I'm coming out of it I'm I'm producing a lot more but I think that I was trying to that I, I was I think I was caught in a lot of bad mental habits and things like that and so far from being an authority that should be listened to I'm kind of like somebody who is also trying to figure out how to do this thing that maybe at one point I knew how to do and somehow like got jolted out of knowing how to do and maybe now I'm working my way back to knowing how to do it. It's tough. I've certainly been there. Well, you had a, a post in your uh, blog about uh, panning for gold versus being a prospector or, or something. Like wow. A, or the, being an alchemist. That was back in 2010. You're hitting the classics. Yes, I totally forgot about that. It didn't end up in the book. 
But yes, I used to talk about being an alchemist versus a prospector, is what I used to say. And that uh, the job of a writer is not to be a prospector. It's not to go to your wellspring of inspiration and pan for gold and hope some flex come along. It's to be an alchemist who can create gold from scratch on assignment every day, which is a tall order. Maybe not actually true. Maybe an impossible goal. Maybe an impossible ideal to search for. Maybe it's a great metaphor, but is it true? Is it true? Is it possible? It's the dream. Is it the reality? Our topic for today is another piece of advice that James has consistently disagreed with. Here's one that he actually tried to spike from the book, and I refused to spike it from the book, even though I can understand some of his objections, and you'll hear his objections tonight, but I, I'm i sticking to my guns. I stuck to my guns. I kept it in the book, despite a concerted effort by James not to do it. He dug up an old email in which he very passionately and persuasively argued that I should cut this from the book, but I left it in. So we're going to talk about my, in general, my 14-point structure that I recommend that people write with, which I realize right there is a controversial thing. A lot of people don't want to hear about that. They want to hear about, oh, here's the general structure people should have. But James especially objects to one of the 14 points, which is that, uh, well, we'll get to it. I'll go through the structure, and then we'll talk about the one that James objects to. So should we do that? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So every guru has their own list of essential structure points, and I am no different, although it's absolutely ridiculous to refer yourself as a guru, but on the other hand, it's sort of ridiculous not to when you've gotten to the point where I am. So here's my 14 steps that I think apply to almost every story. Now, I always make it clear that this is any story about the solving of a large problem. So for instance, these don't apply to Pulp Fiction because Pulp Fiction is not a story about the solving of a large problem, but almost every story is, so this applies to most stories. So in Alien, the problem, is, the large problem is that there's an alien in the ship, yes, right? Yes, that is true. In yes. uh, Back to the Future, the problem is uh, Marty has gone back in time and his going back in time has caused him not to exist and he has to get his parents back together or something, right? Yeah. Um, let's, let's identify, let's just make give up concrete examples when we say these things so that people know what we're talking about. Sure. So wait, Matt, instead of you saying your your 14 point thing, can I try to, to sum it up? Sure. All right, so we start out with a hero that has some long-standing personal problem, such as, like, Clarice Starling uh, is not is nervous about making the grade at the, F- at the FBI. Sure. And then there's the step two is what you call the public humiliation. Um, there's some kind of social thing that happens to them that kind of knocks them down a couple pegs, right? Sure. Um, in like in Clarice Starling's case, what would that be? That well, we see her get on an elevator that's filled with big, intimidating FBI agents. She tries to enter a room where they're discussing the Buffalo Bill case, but everybody looks at her like she doesn't belong there and tells her, you know, you're not allowed to be here. You have to go outside and wait for the person you're talking to. So it doesn't have to be a big thing. This public humiliation. Right. It doesn't have to be everybody in the lunchroom is laughing at you. Right. Okay, good. So then comes step three. The hero gets this intimidating opportunity. And, of course, that would be in Silence of the Lambs when Crawford gives uh, Clarice Starling this mission of go and interview uh, Hannibal Lecter, right? Exactly. Who's the subject? The psychiatrist, Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal the cannibal. And then there's a hesitation. Um, the right. Step four is what you usually say. I suppose when, uh, in, if this is Joseph Campbell, this would be the refusal of the call part. Exactly. Um, and does Clarice Starling hesitate at all? She just very briefly hesitates. She says, like, are you sure I'm the right person for this? She is a little bit hesitant to take the job. Now, we're four steps in, and we're only about 15 minutes into the movie, right? Yeah. Okay. And now step five is the hero commits. And, of course, we just see this when she goes to the place where Hannibal Lecter is, right? Exactly. 
Okay, so it doesn't have to be any kind of big, like, uh, standing on top of a mountain with your cape blowing behind you saying, I will do this. It can just be very low-key. Now, frequently, we never even see when the hero commits. It, you know, we see the hero be offered this opportunity. We see them be like, I don't know, I don't know. And then we just cut, boom, and we see they're doing it. So, one, long-standing personal problem. Two, public humiliation. Three, intimidating opportunity. Four, hesitation. Five, the hero commits. Now we're to six. Committing causes unexpected conflict. It's usually the unexpected conflict is not something that the person found out about when they got the intimidating opportunity. So Chilton, the, the horrible guy who runs the insane asylum, it's actually a great example of unexpected conflict. Oh, what does he do for people who haven't read Sansa of the Lambs or have seen the movie? Uh, well, he well, he hits on her, <laughs> he, uh, he sexually harasses Clarice, and he implies that she doesn't belong there, that she should treat Lecter as a subhuman, like he treats him as a subhuman. Uh, he's generally awful. Perfect. So, great. We're, we're six steps in. We're about 20 minutes, 25 minutes into the movie, and the movie is tracking your, uh, your 14 steps perfectly. Okay, now step seven. The hero tries to solve the problem the easy way. Aha. This is the one you have a problem with. Okay, but let's, for now, let's say I'm totally open-minded. What do you mean here? She was told by her boss, and basically told the same thing by children, don't let Lecter get into your head. And you're to tell him nothing personal, Starling. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. Hmm. And so for Clarice, the easy way is to somehow get the information she needs out of Lecter without letting Lecter into her head. So that's the what the first half of the movie is. Okay. Is, is the easy way is to essentially trick Lecter, tease out of Lecter the answers that she needs without making herself vulnerable to Lecter. Okay, so now we're up to step eight, which was the hero has some fun, you say, and gets excited about the possibility of success. Does Clarice have having fun? Well, she definitely she definitely gets excited. She's definitely, you know, she doesn't enjoy herself as much as other people do. But I think she definitely gets excited about the possibility of success, and she definitely is, you know, shares that with her boss. So this is the stuff that ends up on the movie poster. This is exactly where we find the death's head moth. Exactly. And so then step nine is the big crash. Right. Um, and the, the, this is the midpoint of the movie. This is the exact middle and resulting in the loss of a safe space or a sheltering relationship. Yeah. So obviously the big crash in Silence Lambs is actually triggered by Chilton, who reveals to Lecter, peevishly reveals to Lecter that the FBI has been lying to him. That's another big part of the easy way in this movie, is that they lie to Lecter. So it's not just that she's trying to get this stuff out of Lecter without talking about her past, but she is. She comes up with this lie where they lie to Lecter and say they're going to be able to get him into a cushier prison if, she, if he helps them. The senator promises you a transfer to the VA hospital at Oneida Park, New York, with a view of the woods nearby. Maximum security still applies, of course. And so that is that is their way of doing it easy. And then the big crash happens when Lecter finds out they've been lying. Lecter stops participating with them. And then it gets even worse where then Lecter goes over their head to the senator whose daughter has been captured and tells her, oh, you know, if you work with me, you know, cut the FBI out, work with me, I'll tell you what you need to know. And then he's transferred to another state where they're going to have laxer security. He's completely taken out of the FBI's hands. He's taken out of police and her boss's hands. And so this is a big disaster. This is the big crash. So then that's step nine. Now we come to step 10. The hero tries the hard way. Yes. So the hard way in this case is A, she has to tell him the truth. And B, she now has to tell him everything. She has to do the exact thing she was told not to do. She has to let Lecter into her head. She has to start talking about her own personal, private uh, fears and hopes and dreams, the sort of things that Lecter, sort of like a vampire, wants to scoop up, that he wants to suck out of her, steal her soul, and he, she has to make her soul uh, vulnerable to Lecter. 
All right, yes. Now, please tell me how. No. It's your turn to tell me, Clarice. You don't have any more vacations to sell. Why did you leave that ranch? This seems to go right naturally into what you call step 11, the spiritual crisis. Right. And so in South Lambs, the spiritual crisis is then when Lecter escapes. All of her worst fears come true because she has given Lecter all of this power and now Lecter is able to use the power in the worst possible way. Lecter has taken advantage of all the mistakes that have been made by Chilton, by the FBI, by everybody, and has escaped. Which means that in agreeing to work with one serial killer and to, and to catch another serial killer, the worst possible consequences have come to pass. And so then it comes to step 12, proactive pursuit of the true goal. Yes. So, of course, this is when Clarice realizes she has to catch Buffalo Bill by herself. Now, it's interesting. Usually in a movie, this would be where she decides she has to catch Lecter. You know, either gives up on the original serial killer and goes after Lecter, or finds a way to catch them both at the same time, or play them off each other. No, in this movie, she just accepts the consequences that Lecter is free, and she's still trying to catch Bill. And so she realizes that she has to go to she has to go back to the state that Buffalo Bill is from, and that she uh, has to follow up on the clues Lecter has given her. It's all up to her. And then... Step 13, the penultimate step, the timeline is unexpectedly moved up. Yes, this is one I'm proud of because this is something that is not in anyone else's structure. Everybody has their own version the of Matt these Bird steps. Matt Bird original people. Matt Bird original, but the timeline is unexpectedly moved up. So, for instance, we want to see Clarice become more proactive and we want to see her be ready to solve the whole problem by herself, but we want her to be forced to do it before she's actually ready to do it because that's what keeps things exciting so we want them to be proactive but we don't want them to be so proactive that they're totally on top of everything and they're totally in charge we want them to suddenly despite the fact that they were ready to do the right thing and they were preparing to do the right thing suddenly it's voiced upon them before they're ready for it and classic example in science of the lambs she thinks that she is knocking on a door of a former neighbor of the victim to find out more about the victim growing up. And then she only realizes once she's knocked on the door, I've actually found the killer much sooner than I thought I would find the killer. And I've actually entered the killer's house without realizing that that's what I was going to do. And then finally, chap- uh, step 14, climax and epilogue. Yes, which obviously is the huge climactic confrontation in Silence of the Lambs. And then very chilling epilogue where she then speaks to Lecter briefly on the phone. So, wow, it looks like your 14-step thing works perfectly with Silence of the Lambs. And as you proved on your website, it works on a lot of other uh, books and movies as well. Yes. So I've taken 23 different movies. Oh, what? I'm up to 25 now. 25 different movies and frog-marched them through the 14 steps, uh, through these various questions about structure. And uh, it's really shocking. It's really shocking how often movies say yes to them. It's also shocking the movies that completely decimate this list. And, you know, a movie that might seem like a traditional movie like The Shining completely destroys this list. Or lots of movies. You know, like How to Train Your Dragon really does this list and and really sort of throws this list for a loop. But Silence of the Lambs is is one of the most classic examples. So I would say a lot of people listening to this podcast, and certainly me, were not people who analyze stories. We're people who are trying to write stories. And God so, help you. And so this is probably something that it would be, it might even be fatal to try to write your story by point by point trying to fulfill this list. Yeah. I think what the, what, and I think that this is where people start to go astray when they get under the influence of a guru. They say, oh my gosh, these are all such good points. I'm just going to fulfill them all. And then therefore I'm going to have the best story ever. I'm going to write the next Silence of the Lambs. And I think what you need to do is commit to the idea of the solving of a large problem and yeah. then have the character try to solve that large problem and then 
after it's written, then when you're trying to rewrite it or you're trying to find where the problems are, you want to, where you want to tidy it up or make it better, then consult this list. And this will show you the places where in the past these things have worked for other movies and then you, or, in, or stories, and then you can pick and choose from this list as you, will, as you want as some kind of guidance. But I think no. it would be fatal to start a story thinking this way. Yeah, well, no, there's nothing worse when I'm reading somebody's novel or screenplay and they're like, oh, I wrote it exactly according to your list. So, you know, I got to the end of the Interminating Opportunity and then it said that I needed to do hesitation. So then I wrote a scene that was entitled The Hesitation Scene. And don't worry, I checked that one off. And then I went on to The Hero Commits Scene. Then I wrote a scene that was The Hero Commits Scene. And it's awful. Absolutely never should you have all 14 of these things happen on screen in order then I say that. Is it true of Silence of the Lambs? I feel like even in Silence of the Lambs that, you know, like, for instance, the hero commits. We never see her commit. She doesn't stand up and say to her boss, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. You know, we just see her reluctantly hear all this stuff and then do it. There's all sorts of scenes that get skipped. There's nothing worse that you can do than to write a scene because the structure tells you you should have that scene. Good. You agree with me. Then yes. with that in mind, let's talk about this idea of the easy way. Right. Because if this is going to be advice for writers as they're writing... I think some people might be misled by this phrase, the easy way. And even though it's a very pithy way of expressing what you want to say, I think it's ultimately misleading. So I wonder if there's any way you can come up with a better way of expressing what you want to express when you talk about the hero trying to do something the easy way, and then they're eventually obliged to do it the hard way. The reason is because the easy way, that phrase, just doesn't track emotionally with what is happening in most good stories I can think of. And to use the term easy way might tempt the beginning storytellers into having their character make easy choices which would be storytelling death. I wasn't getting any acting jobs, so I took the easy way and started dressing as a woman. That doesn't sound right. It it took effort and skill, and it was a gigantic risk for Dustin Hoffman's character to pass himself off as a woman in Tootsie. It's not the easy way. But I feel like this is... The easy way can be a giant risk, and the easy way can take tremendous effort and skill. I feel like usually the easy way, especially in comedies... Uh, I talk more specifically about specific genre structures. I talk about how comedy in comedy, the easy way is almost always wearing a mask. That the hero succeeds by wearing a mask in the second quarter, and often in the second and third quarter in comedies, as as which happens with Tootsie. As with Clarice and Silence of the Lambs, you're lying. Like lying is always inherently the easy way. Like it's always much easier to lie than to tell the truth. No, it's easier to do nothing. Well, right. Well, it's not the really easy way. Well, well, that's the thing. And most like beginning storytellers have their, their characters do nothing. Here's right. what seems to me to be the case. It seems that characters always first try to solve their problems without changing themselves fundamentally. In fact, they just grapple with the problems using the default strategies and tactics they've always used. They do what they've been doing, except more so. That is, they double down on their default problem-solving attitude until they fail, and then they have to forge a new problem-solving attitude. Like, does Luke heedlessly and recklessly rush into the Sand People's territory to chase down R2-D2? Yes, so multiply that heedlessness and recklessness by a thousand when he decides to heedlessly and recklessly rush into the Death Star's detention block to save Princess Leia. Neither of these acts are easy, but the latter is an intensification of the former. There isn't a point in Star Wars in which Luke shifts tactics going from the easy way to the hard way, but at the end, when he slips into a force trance and blows up the Death Star, his tactic has changed from hot-headedly flying half-cocked into every situation to starting to cultivate or tap into some kind of deep, tranquil zen thing, which is the opposite of hot-headedness. It's not from easy to hard. I think it's from default problem-solving tactic to conscious 
um, like re- regenerated problem solving technique. Well, I love what you're getting into, and I think that this is a whole another thing that I've never gotten into that I probably could get into because another thing I talk about to talk about a lot on the blog and in the book is how every character should have a default argument tactic. And you're talking about how the character shouldn't just have one default argument tactic. That as the character grows and changes, then their argument tactic, their default, they intensify it, and then it, until it breaks down, that their default problem solving you know, goes through a transformation, which is something I've never dealt with. I've never even thought about. So I think it's fascinating. But I still think that if you look at Star Wars, the easy way is we've got these plans. Let's deliver the plans to someone who can do something about it. And so let's take these plans to Alderaan. And that is the easy way. It's not easy to leave your home of Tatooine, the only thing that you've only known, and to get on a, a, a ship with some pirate and a wizard. Um, that's not easy. What a piece of junk. She'll make point five past light speed. She may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts, kid. And it's... what I'm saying is that it might work in a specific, limited, technical usage of your own way of using the term easy. I'm saying as a beginner screenwriter or, or storyteller, the kind of people who are going to read your book, they're going to see easy. And even if you have a million hedges saying oh, I don't really mean easy, easy. I mean this specific technical limited sense of Matt Bird easy. It's it's going to mislead people just because of the word easy. You think it sounds too much like passive? Um, Yeah, it does. You th- so you think that obviously the number one thing, the number one death for any hero is for the hero to be a passive hero. Right. And you think that if I'm telling people, oh, this is where the hero does the easy way, this, this hypothetical dreadful person we've described before who is going through my list and is going like, okay, all right, that scene next. I'll write the easy way scene. You think that they're going to go like, oh, good. My hero doesn't have to be active or engaging in anything hard or difficult or risky yet. Instead, I'll just have them do something relatively easy for them and until we get to the big crash. Yeah. If your goal with your book is to help people write better stories, people who are beginners who need your help, I think you choosing the vocabulary the easy way is the wrong choice. No, I see what you're saying. That's the last thing I want to do is encourage or condone any sort of passivity in characters. But I feel like it's still useful terminology. I still feel like I like the term the easy way because I feel like if you look at these 25 movies I've evaluated that there almost always is something that I would call the easy way. And it's just a question of being, this is why you actually have to buy the book and read the book. If, if you browse the book in Barnes & Noble, let me warn you, dear reader or dear non-reader, that you will destroy yourself if you attempt to not pay for the book because you have to buy the book, you have to pay for the book, and you have to read the book. This is how Scientology started. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, look, look. You you have to sign up for the classes. You have to get evaluated. <laughs> you have to purge yourself of your thetans, yeah. or else uh, you're never going to enter the tenth level. Because it's what you're saying is is I see the danger of what you're saying more so than I ever saw before. Okay, let, let let's let's think about a different way of phrasing it. Uh-huh. H- how about so? I think at the beginning the hero doubles down on their default problem solving tactic. And then when what that's the, when you call it, they try to do it the easy way. And then they when they when you say the hard way, I think they forge a new sword. Maybe it's like your initial default problem solving strategy, the the one that the character has at the beginning is a sword that they've inherited that they've always used in combat. It's always worked for them, but they've never really thought about where the sword came from or mm-hmm. why they use it. 
And when problems first start to mount up in the story, they double down and just use that sword again and again. At first it succeeds. And then one day in a particularly fierce battle, the sword gets broken. Now you have to forge a new sword. And this forging is a more deliberate and personal process. And the sword that comes out of this will be better and truer to you than the first sword that you merely inherited. I, I gotta say, I'm not a fan at all of this terminology. You're it doesn't matter if you're not a fan of this particular terminology. And I'm not a fan of yours. I just think that between the two of us, we can find a better way to say, or rather than the easy way and the hard way, you like... I just, I hate sword terminology. I hate, you know, I think that Joseph Campbell just turns a lot of people off. Uh, I think that this whole idea of like, oh, you know, it's all a fairy tale, it's all knights, it's all this. I think that a lot of people that just that just freezes. Well, them it out. super appeals to me, and it's it really talks to me. So, uh, well, then go buy Joseph Campbell. I hope so you and Joseph. Bitter. Like, I, just let let me try to help you. I uh, hope that you and Joseph Campbell have a very nice time together. <laughs> Here's another thing that, um, which I feel like my previous terminology of saying double down works. Because um, in Tootsie, D- Dustin Hoffman's character arrogantly insists that his superior acting chops, chops should get him better roles. And then he doubles down on arrogantly relying on his superior acting chops when he decides to be, impersonate a woman all the time. That's not easy. It's an intensification of and a deeper commitment to the wrong-headed ideas behind his earlier strategies. Later, he does have to start doing things that you would call the hard way when his mask of dressing like a woman has been lost, but instead of calling it the hard way, it seems it should be a way of pithily expressing this idea. Um, The hero now has to solve his problems without relying on the double-down default strategies that have gotten this far, but have also have caused so many problems. Sometimes his strategy that the hero doubles down on at the beginning causes a lot of problems. It solves a lot of problems, but it causes a lot of problems. And so... And I don't think that's expressed in easy way, hard way. If, but when you say double down, um, and and then like some other, like I'm not going to give you terminology that works. Like inherited sword, reforged sword says some aspect of it to me. And maybe double down, and then like after I've lost the bet uh, or something, I don't know. But the um, the double down strategies win them some early and perhaps illusory victories and bring them a certain amount through the story. But those double down strategies won't take them all the way. A character can't just intensify who they are; they have to transform. So wait, so the easy way is double down, and then the hard way is what? Well, I don't know what I would call it, but the, the easy way would be inherited sword, and the hard way would be the sword that I forged. Wait, I thought we were switching to double down. Terminology. Okay, let's say wait, it's double the down. The easy way is double down. What's the hard way? Um, the um, new card game. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm trying to point... I'm try, I, I can't give you an answer. I'm just trying to fumble my way towards... Just because I don't have something totally thought out doesn't mean that my point is invalid. And I think the easy way, hard way hides a lot of wisdom that you've uncovered. And then you're, all this wisdom that you've uncovered, you're hiding again by saying easy way, hard way. Because it's pithy, and I get that, but I think it's misleading. So you've been pushing this on me since April 2014, and I've been resisting it this whole time. And, you know, what you're saying is very, very... You're making a lot of very good points, what you're saying is very convincing, but I just, but even you are finding that you're not instantly coming up with anything that is as pithy, that is as succinct. Well, I wasn't paid to write a book. Exactly. I, I mean, like, I, I'm, I, I've, but I think I've identified enough problematic things about it that you should seriously rethink saying easy way, hard way. I should say the easy but not passive way. Uh, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. uh, um, I think you should let me write a chapter of the next edition of your book, just like wh- where Matt 
went wrong. I think that's what we're going to have. I think after after every week's episode, we're going to have to do a new amended edition of the book in which James's criticisms are written into the text. Or uh, we should do we should do like a pale fire edition. I'm your Kimbote of the Secrets of Story, where we begin with my text, and then there's thousands of pages of James's annotations after that. How does Clarice double down? She doubles down by continuing to be a super competent FBI agent within the rules that have been given her. What she is, is a rule follower. She's excellent at following rules and getting everything right. She's a straight-A student. She She's doing everything perfectly. And But there's one rule that she was told not to break. Don't let Hannibal Lecter get in your head. And then she breaks that rule. And that that's something she's going outside of the rules, which is something that she's never done before. She let, and, and so she is forging her own sword at that point. Well, we're back to the swords. Oh, man. All right. We sh- I feel like we should be, we should watch Led Zeppelin. The song remains the same, and we should all be imagining ourselves as medieval knights. You, you know, more people are on my side than your side on this point. I don't know about that. Um, how about you, dear podcast listener? You you write in. You vote. Are you more on his side than my side? The, the key word that you said out loud here today that you did not say in that email was you said the word passive. And as a writing guru... Nothing nothing strikes fear into our hearts more than the word passive. So I just have to say magic words. <laughs> you said the magic word. And so you said that this could this could lead people to write passive heroes. And our if we have one goal, we writing gurus, it's to keep people from writing passive heroes. So when you said that this this terminology could uh, could get people to do that, then that was the one thing that struck fear into my heart, more so than anything that was in that massive magnum opus of an email you sent to me back in two thousand fourteen. Don't you realize that people get hypnotized by words on the page and words they read on websites? There's a kind of like gigantic authority when somebody is just talking at you and saying, this is the way things are. And, and so anything you can do to kind of disrupt that or open it up or make room for people to think for themselves, the better. Well, I'm not going to talk about swords. I can tell you that much. There's not, this is going to remain a sword-free book. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to go into a cave. Nobody's going to find a special elixir. But no, I, so I think we've, I think that the biggest progress we've made today is that you've made me wonder if it should have been the naive way and the hard way. And I'm now trying to go back through things and go like, okay, what are examples of when the easy way is not the naive way, but not instantly coming across any examples. But okay, that's a good point because I, if, if you said na- naive way versus the hard way, this would not have occurred to me. I think it's easy that really got under my skin. Yeah, because easy sounds like passive. Yeah, and it's also, it just seems like disrespect for the characters. Right. What you're saying is landing, it's landing on me. I think that in some ways it's really naive. I think that, you know, maybe that would have been better terminology. When I do edition two of the book, maybe you might actually change my mind on this. Who knows? Well, if when you make the the, the change, can you, like, I see you have, like, wide margins in your book. Can you just put, like, my head in the margin, like, with, like, a biggest smile? But un- totally unexplained. Just, like, everywhere where I've changed your mind, just, like, my big, dumb head smiling. Yes, Thank with you. no explanation whatsoever. No explanation. Just Thank the you. mysterious, mysterious uh, head sitting next to one. Getting nose. slightly bigger every time you see it until the last page is just like my mouth and you're like entering it. <laughs> We're getting into some good discussions. Hopefully as the podcast uh, episodes go on, we'll continue to shake up things. Now we get to an even more shocking second part of our podcast. As you recall, if you listen to our first episode, one thing we like to tack on at the end of our episodes is free story ideas. So I inaugurated this the first week. The way we were supposed to do it is 
Every week, one of us gives away a free story idea that we've always wanted to write but never gotten around to writing, and now we're thinking about giving out to the masses, and the other one then tries to implore us to save that idea. However, we have only made it to the second episode, and James, James, who, who does not like to do what he is told, already came back the second week, and he was supposed to bring an idea But I did what I was told to, to the down. tenth power. Yes. He, he instead went off in a completely different direction in a way that is delightful. James, tell them what you did. So Matt had an idea last time about Laika, which is the dog that was shot in space by the Russians, the first animal in space. And he was like, whatever happened to it? He said, oh, so maybe it got caught up by some aliens and they had put it through some tests to see, does the Earth really belong you know, in the Galaxy Federation of Planets or whatever? Um, and we thought, oh, this is a great idea. And so I thought a lot of, in the last episode, I... We were talking about a reading of Matt's play that was going to come up, and I was saying, "Oh, Matt, that you can't, you you got to like just put it out there, and don't worry if it's not perfect. Just put anything out there, and then let the audience decide, and then we can kind of don't don't fuss and fuss and fuss about everything being perfect." Then I realized that was cheap grace. That was me just saying, you know, hey, you take a big risk, and I can just sit back here and laugh. So I decided to write Matt's idea. I wrote a pilot. For like a Rick and Morty style sitcom um, based on his idea of Laika the space dog called Laika and the Blue Mouse. Um, and I wrote it. It's a first draft. It's terrible um, in many ways. But there's, I think there's some good stuff in there too. Well, how long did you spend writing it? You gave yourself a time limit, I believe. Three days. Three days. So I wrote it in three, three days. days. I wrote 70 wrote pages in three days. Yes. And it is, it is good. It is remarkably good. I think... So we are going to put this on the website for you to for you to download. Go to secretsofstory.com, and I will go ahead and have the script available for download. And then I think what we're going to do next week is we're going to totally. After all, we've done two episodes, so you know that old that old format we did is getting old and tired. Let's go ahead and throw everything out the window for the next episode. I think what we're going to do next episode is we're going to go ahead and do a dramatic reading of the script, the two of us, but. We're to make it because we don't want James to dominate the entire episode because we want my cruel voice uh, jutting in at every possible moment. I think then I'm going to go ahead and give James live notes as we're reading the episode. How does that sound? That sounds great. The reason that I want to do it this way is I want to be like frank and vulnerable about what creativity is. Yes. So this is like I, I wanted to like I love Rick and Morty. Love it, love it, love it. And I actually I recommend that you watch a couple episodes of Rick and Morty before we do this. Okay. James has been recommending Rick and Morty to me forever. I've never seen Rick and Morty. This horrifies James to no end. He keeps trying to get me to watch it. So I will I I will vow right now that I will watch some episodes of Rick and Morty before we get meet back to do this. Right. So this is nowhere near the brilliance of Rick and Morty, but what I want to do is in the kind of like show the humility and vulnerability of create a project when you write your first shitty draft. Yeah, this will be a, I think this will be interesting. We'll uh, we'll go ahead and throw throw the format out the window for the third episode, but we'll be back folks. I encourage you to go to secretsofstory.com and download James's script and then we'll go ahead and go through it next time. So here we are. Let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. Any final things you want to say, James? Whatever you want to say about the script that we're going to post online, if you want to say something in the comments, uh, I really don't mind if the criticisms are brutal or if you think it's a piece of garbage because that's the whole idea is to the the first step of creativity is garbage and putting garbage on the page and, and so I, I I don't want anybody to feel polite about that if if they if they feel moved to discuss it great okay let's leave it there the script will be there feel free to comment on the comments and then we'll break it down next time thanks so much. 
Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Head and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.